Welcome to the November 25th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about the efficacy of Asiminib in patients with chronic myeloid leukemia who are resistant or intolerant to two or more tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Discuss the role of dopamine signaling in hematopoietic stem and progenitor cell function. And learn more about elevated plasma concentration of complement factor C5 as a risk factor for venous thromboembolism. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled A Phase Three Open-Label Randomized Study of Asiminib, a Stamp Inhibitor, versus Bosutinib, in CML after two or more TKIs, by Delphine Rea from Hôpital Saint-Louis in Paris, France, and colleagues. ATP-competitive tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKIs, such as imatinib, dasatinib, Nilotinib and bosutinib are highly effective in treating CML. However, for those who do not respond, lose response, or experience intolerance, limited treatment options remain. Prior research has shown that patients with chronic phase disease who are resistant or intolerant to two or more TKIs are at high risk of experiencing poor outcomes. Asiminib, previously known as ABLE001, is referred to as a STAMP inhibitor because it specifically targets the able meristoyal pocket. This first-in-class agent has the potential to overcome resistance or intolerance to TKIs currently in use. While other TKIs bind to the ATP site of the bcr able one oncoprotein to inhibit aberrant kinase activity, Asiminib acts by inhibiting the kinase activity of bcr able one via allosteric binding. In a previous Phase I study, Asiminib demonstrated relatively high and durable responses and a favorable safety profile in heavily pretreated patients with CML. In that study, 48% of patients achieved or maintained a major molecular response by 12 months, and 91% of them maintained their response at the time of analysis. Bosutinib is an ATP-competitive second-generation TKI with proven clinical efficacy in prospective studies of heavily pretreated patients with CML. It is approved for use in newly diagnosed patients with Philadelphia chromosome-positive CML in chronic phase and for patients with resistance or intolerance to prior TKIs in all phases of CML. The current study reports on the results of the primary analysis from ASSEMBLE, an open-label randomized phase 3 trial comparing asiminib with bosutinib in patients with chronic phase CML who failed two or more TKIs. At screening, the patients were required to have bcr able one transcript levels greater than or equal to 1 on the international scale. For patients with intolerance, a level of greater than 0.1% was required. A total of 233 patients were randomized 2 to 1 to receive either asiminib 40 mg twice daily, or bosutinib, 500 mg once daily. Median follow-up from randomization to cutoff was 14.9 months. 
randomization was stratified by major cytogenetic response status at baseline. The primary endpoint was the rate of major molecular response at week 24. Investigators observed superior efficacy of asiminib compared to bosutinib with a major molecular response rate at week 24 of 25.5% for asiminib and 13.2% for bosutinib. After adjusting for major cytogenetic response at baseline, the difference in major molecular response rate between the two treatment arms was 12.2%. Additionally, the response rate with asiminib was superior to that with bosutinib across the major demographic and prognostic subgroups, regardless of line of therapy. The response rate was also higher in patients who discontinued their last TKI due to lack of efficacy. The treatment effect was consistent and independent of the demographic and prognostic variables analyzed, including those that were imbalanced between the treatment arms at baseline. Furthermore, in patients without a baseline complete cytogenetic response, the complete cytogenetic response rate at 24 weeks was 40.8% for asiminib versus 24.2% for bosutinib. After adjusting for major cytogenetic response at baseline, the difference in complete cytogenetic response rate between the two treatment arms was 17.3%. Adverse events and lack of efficacy were the most common reasons for treatment discontinuation prior to completing 24 weeks of therapy in both treatment arms. After 24 weeks, the most common reason for discontinuation was lack of efficacy. Notably, fewer grade 3 or greater adverse events, 50.6%, versus 60.5%, and fewer adverse events leading to treatment discontinuation, 5.8% versus 21.1%, occurred with asiminib compared to bosutinib. Thrombocytopenia and neutropenia were the most common grade 3 or greater adverse events reported in both treatment arms. Taken together, these data demonstrate superior efficacy and deeper molecular response rates of asiminib compared to bosutinib in at least the third-line setting, as well as a favorable safety profile of asiminib. In an accompanying commentary, Charles Schiffer from Wayne State University School of Medicine noted that the authors successfully validated the approach of blocking the signaling effect of the Miristoil site in patients with CML resistant to traditional TKIs. Although the response rates were lower than hoped for, the clinical benefit of asiminib in this subset of CML patients is evident. The lower response rates suggest that ATP or Miristoil pocket signaling might still be present or that asiminib has little effect on the other unknown, non-mutation-driven pathways leading to TKI resistance. At this time, it is not clear whether inhibiting BCR-ABLE1 with a combination of TKIs that block both the ATP and Miristoil pocket binding sites will produce deeper responses or eliminate CML stem cells which are a reservoir for rapid molecular relapses after TKI discontinuation. Although in vitro experiments suggest that combination therapy may decrease the development of mutations in the ATP and Miristoil binding sites, this needs to be validated in the clinical setting. Schiffer is hopeful that the current study will lay the groundwork for trials of asiminib in earlier stages of treatment, with the long-term goal of improving the rate of treatment-free remission.
Additional studies will also provide valuable insights about Asiminib's long-term safety. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Dopamine Signaling Regulates Hematopoietic Stem and Progenitor Cell Function by Yang Lu and Chi Chen from the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Biomedicine in Germany and colleagues. Hematopoietic stem cells, or HSCs, have critical roles in fundamental physiological processes, including oxygen transport, immune response, and tissue repair. The evolution and maintenance of HSCs in the highly complex bone marrow microenvironment is regulated by many different coordinating cell types, including endothelial cells, adipocytes, and megakaryocytes. Chemotherapy or radiotherapy, followed by bone marrow transplantation, involves the rapid expansion of hematopoietic stem and or progenitor cells, or HSPCs. Stroma-derived niche factors are relevant to how the hematopoietic system responds to such treatments. Further insight into how these factors modulate HSPCs is needed. Interestingly, adrenergic nerves in the bone marrow have been found to control circadian oscillation in HSC migration and have also been implicated in acute myeloid leukemia, chemotherapy, and HSC aging. It is believed that the influence of adrenergic signals is indirect via alterations in niche cells of the bone marrow. Studies have also demonstrated that the sympathetic nervous system innervates the bone marrow microenvironment and regulates hematopoiesis. However, a deeper understanding of sympathetic nerve regulation of HSPC function is lacking, particularly whether such nerves control HSPCs directly. There are five dopamine receptors. And, based on signaling activity, they are divided into D1-type and D2-type receptors. The latter includes dopamine receptors DRD2 and DRD3, which are expressed on HSPCs. In the current study, investigators assessed the production of dopamine in the bone marrow and examined the role of dopamine signaling on HSPC behavior. To achieve this, they conducted experiments in DRD2 and DRD3 knockout mice and DRD2-DRD3 double knockout mice and performed transplant experiments. The authors also assessed the expression of tyrosine hydroxylase in the bone marrow, since this enzyme is required for dopamine synthesis. High dopamine levels were found in the bone marrow, and the expression of dopamine receptors 2 and 3 was confirmed on HSPCs but not on differentiated hematopoietic cells. Interestingly, tyrosine hydroxylase was found in the bone marrow nerve fibers, but not in other stromal cell types and hematopoietic cells. Their analysis showed higher numbers of HSCs near tyrosine hydroxylase-positive nerves, while ablation of these nerves caused a significant decrease in HSPCs. Experiments in knockout mouse models revealed that single DRD2 and DRD3 knockouts and the DRD23 double knockout had a significant decrease in HSPC numbers. Furthermore, HSCs isolated from the bone marrow of DRD23 double knockout mice and transplanted into primary and then secondary recipients showed poor reconstitution confirming that DRD23 function in HSCs is cell-autonomous and independent of global loss of function. 
To examine the function of dopamine in tissues peripheral to the nervous system, the authors conducted experiments with carbidopa, an agent that inhibits the enzyme aromatic L-amino acid decarboxylase that converts L-dopa to dopamine, and the D2-type receptor agonist 7-hydroxy-DPAT. Consistently, treatment with carbidopa resulted in reduction of HSPCs. This was also true for treatment of mice with the high-affinity D2-type dopamine receptor antagonist haloperidol. Conversely, treatment of donor HSPCs with 7-hydroxy-DPAT stimulated proliferation of wild-type but not DRD23 double knockout donor cells. The dopamine was also able to rescue transplantation into irradiated recipients with reduced tyrosine hydroxylase positive cells. These findings indicate that small molecule agonists and antagonists of the D2-type receptor can have both positive and negative effects, respectively, on HSPC proliferation and transplantation. Interestingly, the authors observed that ERK-MAP kinase signaling was lower in DRD23 double knockout HSPCs. They postulated that this may be due to synergism between D2-type dopamine receptors and the stem cell factor receptor C-kit. A closer look uncovered crosstalk between D2-type dopamine receptors and ERK signaling and expression of the kinase LCK. The authors found that LCK expression in HSPCs increased with D2-type dopamine receptor agonism and decreased with D2-type dopamine receptor antagonism. Additional experiments showed that DRD23 function in double knockout HSPCs could be partially rescued by overexpression of LCK. The authors concluded that dopamine maintains LCK expression to control stem cell factor-induced ERK signaling downstream of CKIT. Taken together, these findings point to critical functional roles of dopamine in HSPCs. This may facilitate the development of therapies for improved bone marrow transplantation and other conditions requiring the rapid expansion of HSPCs. In an accompanying commentary, Owen Tamplin from the University of Wisconsin-Madison noted that the study demonstrates direct regulation of HSPCs by cell surface dopamine receptors, as well as the proximity of dopamine-producing nerves to HSPCs in the bone marrow niche. The finding that HSCs are in close proximity to tyrosine hydroxylase-positive nerves was unexpected because electron microscopy data previously suggested that nerves in the bone marrow only contacted stromal cells. Tamplin believes that future studies should focus on understanding how dopamine signaling is utilized during steady-state hematopoiesis and during stress. Further insights into dopamine signaling in the bone marrow niche during aging would also be of particular interest. Lastly, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Elevated Plasma Concentration of Complement Factor C5 is Associated with Risk of Future Venous Thromboembolism by Espen Wage Skeflo from the University of Tromsø, the Arctic University of Norway in Tromsø, Norway, and colleagues. Even though venous thromboembolism, or VTE, is relatively common in the general population, the mechanisms that initiate VTE are not fully understood. Prior studies proposed that the complex interaction between complement and coagulation systems 
may promote VTE formation. A large Danish cohort study found that subjects with plasma complement C3 levels in the highest tertile had a 30% higher risk of VTE compared with subjects in the lowest tertile. In addition, Skeflo and colleagues previously demonstrated that higher levels of the final activation product of the complement cascade, the terminal complement complex C5b to 9, were associated with an increased risk of VTE. Complement factor 5, or C5, plays a central role in complement system activation, since cleavage of C5 results in release of a potent anaphylatoxin, C5a, as well as C5b. The release of C5b, in turn, initiates the formation of C5b to C9, the membrane attack complex. In response to C5a, neutrophil recruitment and priming occurs, which further promotes thrombosis through platelet aggregation and activation, as well as thrombin formation. In addition, the membrane attack complex contributes to the activation of the coagulation cascade, through platelet activation and assembly of the prothrombinase complex. In this report, Skeflo and colleagues investigated whether plasma complement component C5 levels are influenced by genetic variants or chronic inflammation, and examined any potential association between plasma C5 levels and risk of future VTE. The study followed 27,158 patients, 25 years or older, from 1994 to 2007, until an incident VTE, migration, death, or end of follow-up. In addition to baseline measurements of height, weight, and body mass index, medical history was taken with a special emphasis on diabetes, previous cardiovascular events, and cancer. Complement C5 was quantified at inclusion, and plasma levels of C-reactive protein were measured to assess the general level of inflammation. Whole exome sequencing and protein quantitative trait loci analyses were performed on a subgroup of 255 patients with VTE and 354 controls to assess the potential genetic influence on C5 concentrations. A total of 415 patients developed VTE during the follow-up period. The authors found that plasma C5 levels were only slightly affected by inflammatory status, as demonstrated by a linear relationship between plasma C-reactive protein and C5. Furthermore, subjects with C5 levels above the lowest tertile were found to have an increased risk of VTE, while subjects in tertile 3 with the highest C5 levels had an age and sex-adjusted odds ratio of 1.45 of developing VTE compared to the lowest tertile. This effect was more pronounced for unprovoked VTE. The odds ratios increased substantially with shorter time between blood sampling and VTE. Adjusting for body mass index and C-reactive protein resulted in only a minor impact on these risk estimates. Interestingly, no association was observed between genome-wide or C5-related gene variants and C5 levels. Taken together, the study findings demonstrate that plasma C5 levels are associated with risk of VTE, that C5 levels are not genetically regulated, and that they are only slightly influenced by chronic inflammation. In an accompanying commentary, Kristen Sanfilippo from the St. Louis Veterans Administration Medical Center 
noted that this study establishes C5 as a risk factor for VTE within the general population, which not only strengthens the evidence for the role of complement in hemostasis, but also provides a rationale for future studies considering novel therapeutic interventions. While earlier studies demonstrated that inhibition of C5 in patients with paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria improves outcomes and decreases the risk of clinical thromboembolism, the current study raises the question of whether a subgroup of VTE patients could similarly benefit from complement inhibition. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.